Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com slash Changelog. Move fast and fix things like we do here at Changelog. Catch your errors in your software before your users do. And if you're not using Rollbar yet, they want to give you $100 to donate to open source via Open Collective. And all you got to do is go to rollbar.com slash changelog, sign up, integrate Rollbar into your app. And once you do that, they're going to give you $100 to donate to open source via Open Collective. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show at changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. Welcome back, party people. We are here. We are excited. We have a special guest. We have a special host. Unfortunately, they're both named Adam, so we'll have to deal with that. But hey, that's just the way it goes. Namespace clashes. We're used to those in programming, right? <laughs> that's what makes it fun. So guest today, Adam Wathen from Fullstack Radio. You may know the voice. Hey, guys. You may know him from Tailwind CSS. Adam, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And then Adam Stack, who is this your first JS Party appearance? First time rodeo out from behind the curtain joining us to talk css so this might be a css party yes um might be a full stack party adam first of all wathen tell us about full stack radio that show that you do yeah sure so um full stack radio is a podcast that i started back in 2014 mostly just as an excuse to ask really smart people questions that i wanted answers to and i figured if I just email someone and say, hey, can I harass you over Skype for an hour and bug you with questions? <laughs> They'd probably say no. But if I said, hey, do you want to be a guest on my podcast? There's a better than zero chance that they would say yes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I've been doing that for a handful of years now. And I still put an episode every two weeks, kind of talk to people in the software industry about everything from, you know, product design and marketing to unit testing to system administration to front end to back end, whatever, kind of all over the place. Um, so that's been pretty fun. It's been a great way for me to sort of uh, quickly learn new things and uh, and find out how people who are experts in different areas kind of tackle the problems that I run into when I'm trying to learn new stuff. How much of that learning has fed into Tailwinds to bring it home? I don't know that there's actually been a ton of stuff on the podcast before Tailwind came out that really informed uh, what I ended up doing with Tailwind. I did do, I have had a couple episodes about it though. Like actually the very first episode of the podcast ever was about utility classes in CSS before I had kind of made up my own mind about it. So that's kind of interesting to go back and listen to if anyone is kind of curious. Um, and then I did an episode with uh, Mark Otto, who's one of the people behind Bootstrap once, mm -hmm. uh, which was pretty interesting too. But those would probably be the only two really deep dive CSS episodes that we did before actually putting out the framework. It's funny your reasoning for doing full stack radio, you know, being able to pick the minds of, of smart people. I always joke that we have a similar tact with regard to the changelog specifically, 
inviting on open source developers. But our Trojan horse is, hey, come on the changelog and talk to us about your project. And then we get them on the show and then we throw our feature requests at them. And they can't say no <laughs> while they're live on the air, right? Mm-mm. It's easiest time to get a feature. That's right. It's the best way to get a feature or a bug fix. <laughs> Especially if you do the PR during the show. That's right. Which Jared has done at least once. <laughs> Love it. So we got to give a shout out to uh, Aparajita, uh, Aparajita Fishman, who uh, pinged us on uh, GitHub. So for the JS Party people out there who do not know, we take requests, just like any good DJ. And we have a repo on uh, GitHub at github.com slash the changelog slash ping, where you can open up show ideas. So you can do that for the JS Party. You can do that for the changelog. You can do that for Founders Talk or for Practical AI, any of our shows, and you just hit a label or say which show it's for and give us your show idea. And if we like the idea and you pitch it well and it sounds cool, we will do it on the show. So that's what happened for this. Uh, Aparajita asked for Tailwind CSS. He says that they rapidly changing the way we think about CSS and it will soon be reaching version one. So he asked to get Adam on the show. And so thanks for the idea. And here we have him. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. So let's dive into it then. Tailwind CSS. Tell us about it. You've already told us a little bit the utility classes and really the the timing around it. But uh, version 1.0 coming up. Tell us the big idea. And uh, you've been working on it for some time now. So it seems like a big project. Yeah. So Tailwind, kind of the, the history of it is prior to kind of working on Tailwind, I was using uh, Bootstrap like a lot of people. Uh, it's a great project. And when Bootstrap 4 was coming out, they made the decision to switch from less to SaaS. And I just like less so much more than SaaS. There's just certain little things about it that resonated so much more with me. And there was one like particular workflow I used with it quite a bit that wasn't really possible in SaaS easily. And has actually been since been something that we sort of have incorporated into Tailwind. People have really loved now that the idea has sort of been exposed. And we can kind of talk about that more later, maybe. Yeah. Um, But uh, yeah, Bootstrap 4 was coming out. They were switching to SaaS. I really wanted to keep using less. So I thought, you know what, maybe it's time I bite the bullet and try to just put something together for my own projects from scratch that just kind of gives me the stuff that I need. So I started working on this sort of less, you know, I wouldn't even call it really a framework at the time because I was really just building it for one uh, particular project. And I just kind of put something together that I needed that was very similar to Bootstrap in terms of the sorts of things it included, like a lot more component E than utility E, you know? Yeah. So buttons, form controls, cards, stuff like that. Widgets. Yeah. And there was a handful of utility classes in there that I found really useful. And the things that were really useful for me getting started were uh, mostly stuff like padding and margin stuff. I think that's kind of the gateway drug for most people when they start writing CSS or building interfaces this way, where you have some elements and you need to somehow control the distance between them. And it doesn't really feel right to bake that information into the components themselves because you want them to be able to be used anywhere. So the only real solution ends up being using little spacer helpers and stuff in your markup to control sort of like the relationship between all the different things in the layout. So I was using um, those utility classes were kind of where I first kind of got deep into that sort of thing. And then as I sort of moved from project to project or started working on new side projects, I found myself sort of copying over all these sort of base styles that I created for the previous project, tweaking things here and there for the new project because, you know, things like buttons maybe needed to look different or forms needed to look different. And what I started to find is that over time, I was adding more and more of these little sort of helper classes to do things like centering text or doing some padding and margin 
um, especially doing stuff like responsively, which Bootstrap actually does in the latest version too, which is really cool, like being able to change the margin based on the screen size just as part of the class name, kind of cool stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I found is as I kind of moved these styles along from project to project, the only styles that were really like surviving, the stuff that I didn't have to change was the more lower level sort of closer to the metal uh, helper utility classes. The stuff that was like truly unopinionated about how the project was supposed to look. And then eventually a buddy of mine, Jonathan Rennick, who I ended up working with really closely on getting at the first version of Tailwind, he had kind of like been noticing that I was building stuff this way using more and more of these utility classes. And uh, he wanted to give it a shot. So he wanted me to figure out a way that we could sort of share one code base for our styles. And he could use it on his project, which looked completely completely different from the projects that I was working on. And that was sort of the forcing function that led to figuring out like what's reusable and what's not reusable when it comes to this framework. And by the end of the day, we had to basically rip out things like form controls and buttons because there was no like common ground. Yeah. So all we were left with was was these really sort of low-level utilities and um, figuring out cool ways to sort of combine them and compose things out of them in the HTML responsibly and do interesting things like that. So um, we kind of just were hacking on that sort of together because I was working on a project and he was working on a project and we wanted to share the same CSS code base for it. And, and he had never worked that way before. He had always been doing a more like BEM style approach. And he thought he was happy with that at the time until he started doing things the way that we were doing with this sort of really early version of Tailwind before it even had a name. And uh, he couldn't believe like how much more productive he was being. And he was really, really happy with the approach. So, so we kind of worked on it together um, tried to really polish it up and turn it into something we could release publicly because I was doing a lot of these live streams where I was building an app at the time. And uh, I kind of was doing them because, you know, what I do for a living is I create courses and books and stuff like that. And um, I thought it would be a good way to sort of put some free content out there for people who wanted to learn how to do like TDD with Laravel, for example, because that's one of the topics that I teach. Mm. So I thought, I'll do these live streams, build this app with Laravel that I'm working on. People can kind of watch it, learn kind of how I structure things on the back end, kind of how I do testing, stuff like that. But what was funny to me that I didn't expect was that all of the excitement around the live streams and all the questions people were asking were like, what CSS framework is that? What CSS framework is that? And I never even thought about it as like something I was going to release publicly originally. So that was like another... nice kind of piece of motivation that led to, you know what, let's just like open source this, try and polish it enough that people can use it. Yeah. So this whole time it was a less framework up until the, uh, you know, a couple months before release. And I was just running into problems trying to make it as customizable as I wanted to. We're doing all sorts of like one of the things SAS does a lot better than less is you can do basic things like for loops and create like map structures and stuff like that for, for generating CSS. Right. It's a lot more practical, a lot more straightforward maybe whereas in less you have to do everything with lots of really complex like recursive mix-ins and stuff like that which is actually pretty cool because it kind of feels like you're writing like functional code it almost feels like something you'd be writing with elixir or something um but you're doing it in css but from just like a looking at it from the outside trying to understand how it's all working it's uh, a lot more complicated And, and i was doing things that like weren't even really supported they almost just like worked by coincidence 
Um, so it was getting me to a point where I was like, ah, oh, there's got to be a better way. So I started digging into post CSS and uh, eventually figured out how to like port the whole framework into like a post CSS plugin so I could write all of the code that generates all the classes using JavaScript instead of less. And then what we ended up with at the end of the day is, is basically Tailwind is a CSS framework, but it's also really just like a, a, a tool that takes sort of like a design system specified in a big JavaScript object and basically transforms that into a giant CSS output. I'm going to use this kind of post-CSS to do that. So eventually we kind of got all that working with post-CSS. The code base was way more maintainable. I could actually write tests for it and stuff because it's not like there's a less testing framework or anything like that. Right. And then uh, we put that out. I think it was like Halloween night, 2017. And I've just kind of been picking away at it, slowly improving it ever since. So I've been talking for a while. So I figure maybe I'll take a break. In case there's any questions about where we got to at this point. That's the awkward part about being a guest on a show when you're so used to being a host on podcasts is you're used to asking the questions and then listening and asking. (laughs) You're not used to doing the bulk of the talk. So I think there's a lot of things that we can dig into here, um, and I'm interested in in many of them. I'll just kind of list off things that, that I think we could unpack and discuss. So first of all, you have the conversation, uh, which many people are still having, which is kind of a philosophical um, maybe even a, a style-based conversation around the idea of utility classes or uh, what I've heard called functional CSS versus more traditional semantic CSS with separation of concerns, which was you know, touted for, for many years as the best practice. Um, and many people still believe that today. So that's one topic that maybe we could dive into. Adam, I know you, Adam Stack, I know you have opinions about certain things. I don't know how hard, how firmly you hold them, but I think we could, uh-huh. we could probably yeah. uh, unpack that. Also, I think it's very interesting that Tailwind itself is utility based, but doesn't really provide, like you said, UI widgets or abstractions. It's very low level. And so I'm curious about the intended audience of that sure, versus the people who might want to grab a bootstrap or a foundation or a semantic UI. So maybe we'll start with the, with the opinionated conversation and, and yeah, and you wrote a post uh, back in 2017. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes called CSS utility classes and separation of concerns. You put a, a lot of your thoughts in there, but even one thing you said is that writing CSS this way. And by this way, I mean uh, on your homepage, you have, div class equals bg white mx auto mx wsm shadow lg rounded lg overflow hidden that way yep <laughs> you said it's a pretty visceral reaction from a lot of developers <laughs> and you'd like to explain how you got to this point so it sounds like this was a an evolution for you as well you want to speak to that yeah definitely so i think one of the things that happens a lot in these conversations about functional css is There's an assumption that happens a lot of time, which I think is unfair, that someone who is using classes like text white or font small or something on an element, like wasn't around for the days of like the font tag and doesn't know like what the problems are and and, and stuff like that. Mm. And or that uh, that's like the only way they could think of to style something and that it hasn't occurred to them that it's important to have like some layer of abstraction and stuff like that. So I thought like... The sort of my goal with this post was to sort of document my sort of journey um, because I kind of started from the opposite end. Like I had a very purist kind of deeply held belief that my markup should be completely ignorant of how uh, it's actually being styled and how it's meant to look. And for the longest time, I was writing like SAS and less 
um, the way that I'm sure everyone has seen on projects where you end up with these these style sheets a lot of the time where it's like a single SAS file for like a single page of the app or something. And the whole SAS file is just like this incredibly deeply nested structure that almost mirrors the nesting tree structure of your HTML exactly because you're trying to target everything in the HTML um, based on like where it is in the tree without ever having to like grab an identifier from the HTML because you want to keep the HTML sort of as as pure as possible. Um, So what I kind of was finding, at least with that approach, right, is that um, the idea, the whole point was that I was trying to sort of decouple my CSS and my HTML. I wanted my HTML to be sort of this pure place where there was no styling information and I could just slop on a different style sheet and style it completely different if I wanted to, like very sort of CSS Zen gardeny. But I think the piece that gets left out of that conversation is that when you're trying to write things that way, where your markup basically has no classes and stuff like that, you're sort of doing a disservice to your actual CSS because now you have to write like the craziest, most tightly coupled to your markup CSS possibly imaginable, right? Like this CSS can only be used to style this specific HTML structure. That's the only place that could be used. And this is like at the most extreme end where you're literally trying to do nothing in your HTML to give any affordances to the CSS about like what it can style and how it should style things. So eventually this kind of started to feel wrong to me. It kind of felt like, why am I trying to make my HTML like as clean as possible at the expense of my CSS being this like unmaintainable wasteland? And sort of the next step from that for me was discovering things like BEM, where you do use a lot of classes um, in your HTML. And the idea is this lets you sort of flatten your CSS more. You're not really doing like all the crazy nesting and stuff like that. The CSS can just sort of target like, you know, profile underscore underscore photo or something, and it can sort of style it. The CSS doesn't really know how all the HTML is structured, where things are on the page, uh, but you're giving sort of like explicit hooks for each sort of little piece so you can style it. And this did feel like a lot better. Like things were were split out and stuff like that. But, But what I found myself doing still is... I was still trying to sort of write my classes from from a sort of the perspective that the HTML was in charge. So I would be naming elements in my HTML in terms of giving them classes. I'd be choosing the names for the classes based on the content. So I might have like a sign up form class or I might have like a profile card class or like an article card class, like things that were specific to like the topic of the site or the app that I was building. And then the CSS would, you know, I'd have classes for profile card, article card, whatever, and sort of style them. Mm -hmm. And that was okay. Um, But eventually I sort of found myself in a situation where it's like, there was lots of times where I'd have two things that uh, maybe looked the same, but like weren't the same content and weren't used in the same context. So, Imagine a situation where you have like a a sign up form and it has like a button at the bottom, right? If you're trying to like name all your classes based on like what this thing is, what this component is, um, you're going to have like a class for that button that's maybe like sign up underscore underscore button or something. And you go and and style that that button. But maybe there's another place on your site with a button that looks exactly the same. So what you end up having to do, right, is you you see like, okay, there's a sign up form. And then there's also this like edit profile form or something. And they both use this button that looks the same. So I shouldn't have like an edit profile button class and a sign up button class that just has like duplicate styles in the CSS. That doesn't seem very useful. And if I wanted to create another button on the site, I would like to be able to just 
reuse some of the existing styles. And I think like once you start going down that path where it leads you is basically like the correct thing to do is extract a new class that's sort of decoupled from the container. So instead of having like a sign up button, right? Like a cross cutting concern. Yeah. It's just like a primary button. And now you can use that sort of everywhere. Right. And what I found like to kind of cut the story short really is that following that sort of trail and just keeping like my mind focused on making things uh, reusable sort of just inevitably leads down this path where your CSS classes become less and less about the context or the content and more and more about like what do these two things have in common sort of visually. And eventually it gets to a point where maybe you have like one form that's in a card and another form that's in a card and uh, previously you just had like sign up form and that had a box shadow and a border radius and a border and that at a profile form has a border radius, a box shadow and a border. Um, but to sort of avoid that duplication, you end up creating a new abstraction. That's like card, right? And you just use like a card class on both of those. But like, I think the really interesting thing about this, that people don't realize when they're going down this sort of path and taking out these abstractions is that they're sort of making the decision to choose class names based on sort of the visual outcome, the presentational outcome that they're trying to get instead of the content. Because whether you realize it or not, like what you're trying to do is you're trying to make it possible so that the next time you have something that looks like a card, you can just add the card class to it. Right. And what you've essentially done if you've, is you've made like the CSS the source of truth for what your components are and you've almost haven't even realized it. So like if, if you are writing some HTML and you want to add a class called card because you know you already have a class called card that makes it look a certain way, what you're doing is literally no different than saying that I want to make this text red and add a class called text red. Like you're adding a class because of the way it's going to make it look, not because you're trying to add a class as a hook to then use to reference in your CSS to style that thing that you've added this hook to. Mm. Um, so there's like, there's a level of abstraction here that you can sort of choose like where you want to operate at. Like card is obviously a lot more of an abstract concept than saying something is like text red, but conceptually it's still like the same. You're still taking the same point of view that you're applying classes because you want to change how something looks, not because you want to create a hook that you can then hook into with CSS to directly style that thing. So it's like the HTML is choosing what to consume from the CSS instead of the CSS consuming kind of these class names or tokens that the HTML is inventing. That was kind of like the important realization for me that when I realized that I was comfortable having classes like card, it made me realize that I shouldn't be really uncomfortable with classes like text center or, you know, margin bottom four or things like that, because I'd be applying them for the exact same reasons that I was applying a class like card, if that makes sense. So in the case of a card, then you're saying that when you think about Tailwind and the way it works, you would create a card class, give it its necessary layout styles, but you would then go back to the markup, you know, and on that same div or whatever the, uh, whatever the property is, you would then add some utility classes to give it margin and other special things to sort of define uh, kind of like layout stuff, not so much paint stuff. Is that right? Um, sort of. I mean, the thing that I sort of left out is that where I kind of landed on this is eventually realizing that even things like cards were not a great 
sort of primitive abstraction for the stuff that I was building because instead like you might have a card that has like a sort of a medium box shadow baked into it right but then you have like a button that has the same box shadow built into it so now you have like that same sort of uh duplication in your css and it's like if i change the shadow on this card would i also want to change the shadow on the button probably because it's probably part of like my design system like what are my levels of elevation and how those sort of look or whatever right so what ends up being a lot more practical is like to just have a class to add that sort of box shadow and i add that in both places in the html and now i can just edit that class in one place and both of them change like you can do stuff with like sas placeholder classes and, and, and weird stuff like that to do the, this sort of thing too to an extent but basically i just found that things started to break down and that i couldn't find any really any really good primitives that would survive from project to project that were any higher level of abstraction than essentially like single CSS properties. So sort of the workflow in Tailwind is sort of the opposite of like the workflow that you would take traditionally, where traditionally you are, you have something you want to style it. So you think of a class for it, you go to your CSS file, you type the class name, type all the styles for it, and it sort of works. Um, the approach with Tailwind is you try and style everything in the markup as much as possible with all the classes that Tailwind already provides for you. And it provides tons and tons and tons and tons of classes basically for every CSS property that you can imagine. Um, it's at a slightly higher level of abstraction than just like inline styles, for example, because we don't have like text 14 pixels, text 15 pixels, text 16 pixels. We have like a typographic scale um, that kind of maps those sizes to like t-shirt sizes essentially. So it's like text small, text base, text large, text extra large, stuff like that. And you can go and customize that scale to your heart's content. But the idea is we want to give you just a little bit of abstraction so that it feels like you're working within like a bit of a constrained design system, but effectively you're still just editing single properties. Anyways, the idea is if you want to build a card, you might start by just creating a div and adding a class like BG white because it should start white. Maybe you need some border radius. So you had a class like rounded LG because you want large rounded corners. Maybe you want a medium box shadow. So you had a class like shadow MD. Then maybe you had a class like P4 because you want like some padding around the whole thing. And four is just like, the unit in the padding scale that you kind of want to use. So the padding scale goes from like one to whatever, and each kind of number maps to a specific actual underlying value. And the idea is that you would literally just leave like all six classes on that div until you found yourself creating something else where you applied those exact same six classes or maybe five of those classes. And you realized you were saying to yourself, man, if I have to change this class on this element, I know for a fact I'm going to want to change it on this element because I right. think of them as like the same. So the solution with Tailwind there is, is not to go and create a class like at the very beginning. The idea is you wait for duplication to happen, just like when you're writing real code, right? Like when you're programming, you wait for duplication to actually show up and then you extract that duplication to avoid sort of the maintenance burden. And there's sort of two encouraged paths to doing that in Tailwind. Like, the, the truly like CSS driven Tailwind way to do that is using this feature of Tailwind called at apply, which is like a custom at rule in Tailwind. Um, so like an at rule in CSS for anyone who's not familiar is like something like a media query is an at rule, right? It's got an at symbol, then some text after it. Import is an at rule. Char set is an at rule. Um, so in post CSS anyways, which is what Tailwind is sort of powered by under the hood, um, it will parse your CSS and let you 
like walk all of the at rules or walk a filtered set of at rules and manipulate those sort of in the abstract syntax tree. So you can, so what we essentially do is we have this custom at rule called at apply and post CSS doesn't know that it's not valid CSS, which is kind of like the whole secret sauce really to doing fancy stuff with post CSS. But essentially we walk your CSS looking for instances of at apply and what add apply does in Tailwind is it lets you say like you could create a class like dot card and then inside of it you would just say add apply. Then after add apply, you would just dump a list of class names. So you might say add apply, BG White, P4, Rounded MD, Shadow MD, um, Border Gray, uh, whatever. So maybe you got like five or six class names there. And what Tailwind does in its processing step basically is it treats all those classes exactly like SAS mixins, and it takes the definition of those classes and inlines them into that card class. So the workflow ends up being you have two cards in your HTML that have the same classes and you think, man, I don't want to have to maintain these two lists in sync. I want to create an abstraction. You basically just select all the classes in the class attribute, cut them, go over to your CSS, come up with a name, which is a lot easier now, by the way, because you have two instances of it and you can sort of think in your head, like what do these have in common? What's a name that actually applies to both of these? You come up with a class name like card, you type add apply, you paste in the list of classes and save the file, and then you replace the class attribute on those two elements with card instead of that list of classes now. And now you've basically extracted a component class out of a list of utilities. The nice thing is like the whole thing is still built on that underlying design system that you've sort of been using for the site anyways. So there's no like weird magic values or anything in there. You could add custom CSS, right? And sometimes that's necessary, but generally this workflow is just extracting these classes into a component class to sort of freeze them into this like reusable unit and then applying that in your HTML. And then the other approach of course is if you're working on something like a React app or a Vue app or something, we already sort of have primitives for reusable pieces of HTML, which are components. So instead of creating a card class, you might just make a card React component or a card view component. And then that list of like six or seven utility classes is still only defined in one place. It's defined in that component. So you don't have a duplication problem anyways. So there's no actual pressure to even solve that problem. This episode is brought to you by Raygun, who just launched their APM service. It was built with the developer and DevOps in mind. They're leading with first-class support for .NET apps, also available as an Azure app service, and have plans to support .NET Core, followed by Java and Ruby in the near future. After doing a ton of competitive research between the current APM providers, where Raygun APM excels is the level of detail they're surfacing. New Relic and AppDynamics, for example, are more business-oriented where Raygun has been built for developers and DevOps. The level of detail provided in the traces are amazing. The flame charts are awesome and allows you to actively solve problems and dramatically boost your team's efficiency when diagnosing problems. Deep dive into root cause with automatic links back to source for an unbeatable issue resolution workflow. Learn more and get started at raygun.com APM. Once again, raygun.com APM. So what you explained right there sounds really nice. Uh, just to give you a little bit of my experience, uh, 
I, I consider myself not not necessarily a full stack developer, like 90% stack. And if there's any of the stack that I'm not going to do, it's going to be authoring the CSS. So a lot of times I'm, I find myself a consumer of CSS. So when you were talking about the the you know semantic class names and and versus utility classes in your HTML and the idea that the HTML is really just like the CSS is driving it and you're you're basically trying to pick the correct thing in order to get it to look or work the way yeah, you want. Exactly. Like I live there and many and anybody who uses frameworks you know, spend their days trying to find. Yeah, you, you already live there, no matter what framework you use, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a funny I mean, one that I like. We use it on our back end is Semantic UI, which I just think he has a really nice uh, design. And so I like the yeah. way it's available. It's, it's kind of ironically named now. I mean, it's, it's probably a five year old project because when he says Semantic UI, you think you're referring back to like the semantic class names. And they, but what he's really referring to is like, it's almost like guessable framework names so you know semantic is 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 like just none of like the really short utility names but like call it a button if it's a button versus a btn that's what really what he's talking about but at the end of the day you really are just trying to pick what i consider sometimes like the magic incantation to make it look the way that you want so you know like so if you have a button it's like ui red basic button well you have a class name called red so i mean that's basically a utility class at that point there's no uh, semantic in terms of contextual or content meaning to that like the old purism and the 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 idea behind semantic class names is like you're informing the computer what this is all about right and so red is like a style concern it's not a content concern that being said you know we don't our computers like our systems aren't using the class names to determine these things anyways and so it's not as if they are parsing that out and using it yeah like that doesn't affect like how a screen reader works or anything i think a lot of us are using utility classes maybe without even thinking about it um especially people who consume css more than author it that being said there's a lot of there's still a lot of bem out there today and i'm definitely uh, i think our front end Mm -hmm. is in bem um and you know it does work i mean i definitely feel you in terms of like it's working it allows you some better scoping than than uh, and less like cascade issues, but you end up pulling out these cross-cutting kind of modules or widgets or whatever you call them and mixing them in anyways. And so it's kind of like half, it's kind of a hybrid style. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I kind of think that's where things start to get messy, honestly. Like to yeah. me, it makes more sense to kind of pick a side, right? Like either you try and keep your HTML as restylable as possible, right? So as ignorant as possible to what the actual underlying CSS is that's being applied. So, and by, and if you're going to do something like that, like you don't want to reuse like the same class for multiple different buttons or things like that, probably mm-hmm. because who's saying another style sheet doesn't want to change how those two buttons look and make them look different from each other. But like the opposite version of that is basically trying to make sure no content semantics leak from your HTML into your CSS mm. so that your CSS is completely ignorant to the content. And, and maybe I've just like moved from like one purist approach to another purist <laughs> approach where, yeah. you know, I just either want to have pure CSS or pure HTML. And, and, and these days my experience has been that 
HTML or CSS is way scarier to maintain and grow and scale over time mm-hmm. than HTML because everything in CSS is global, whereas any changes you make in HTML are really local, right? Um, like how many times have you had that experience where you're working on a site, especially if maybe you're brought into a project that you didn't start on, but you have to implement some new piece of UI? The first thing I always did was try and carve out my own little like hole in the CSS file right. where I could make sure that like I was safe and I wasn't doing anything that messed with anyone else. But at the same time, I also had this anxiety around like, am I reinventing the wheel? Is there like something I should be reusing? But I just don't really know. Um, so the approach that Tailwind tries to encourage is basically like HTML is easy. CSS is hard. So you worry about just working in the HTML where everything is predictable and works exactly the way you want. And uh, just assume that all the CSS is basically already written for you unless you need to go and extend it with like your own custom utilities or extract a few classes here and there. Uh, but for the most part, that's like an escape hatch. And generally, like you work in HTML where everything is simple and straightforward. Yeah, I think what that leads to, especially when you're coming into a project or you're, you didn't author the original CSS, is this this hellhole that we all live in, which is like the append only style sheet, you know, yeah. <laughs> style where all, you never you never remove because you're afraid of what you mm-hmm. might be messing up. You only add and 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 you'd rather reinvent the wheel and add a few kilobytes than jack everything up. You know, it's like the fear of of messing up or something, the FOMU, if you will. Um, not to be confused with FOMO. Yeah, you just don't want to screw it up and you don't know it very well. You have to know it intimately to know exactly what you're supposed to do. And so we just keep appending. I think that's really a a systemic problem that um, many of us don't have answers to. Now, on the the purist from one side, purist to the other side, I've lived in both worlds. I've done some utility stuff, mostly as a consumer. And I can say that I think you could probably come up with pretty strong arguments either direction, like if you are the purist on the semantic side, um, I think they have some compelling arguments. And on the utility side, I think there are some as well. I think where the utility stuff really shines with modern web development is what you mentioned at the tail end of the last segment, which is it lends itself really well to building components, which is what more and more what we're building today. Yeah, I think so. I think like the strong argument for the semantic approach is if you're building something where like themeability is really important, mm-hmm. then that's going to change how you author things. And that's going to affect how, the sort of names that you choose for things, for example. Because a class like text red is a really bad class name if it makes the text green when you apply a different <laughs> theme or something, right? And that's yeah. kind of like the classic argument. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it's fair to to say that like, oh, themeability is a concern that every developer should on every project should be holding as like a really important thing. Because I've literally, aside from working on like maybe creating a theme for WordPress or something like that or whatever, I've literally never worked on a project where like themeability mattered at all. Um, You know, if you're working on a GitHub and you're working on creating like the GitHub UI, like, do you have to care about like the ability for someone to be able to write a custom style sheet that moves the nav bar to the bottom of the page or, you know, some weird stuff like that? Like, that's not really like a thing that you're concerned about. More and more, we're building applications that are getting closer and closer to feeling like desktop applications than like websites. And when was the last time that you needed to be able to like theme 
you know, a, a desktop application, like certain things. Yeah. Like your mail client, maybe you can choose between like a compact mode or, right. you know, a more spread out mode or whatever. But a lot of the time that stuff is actually better handled these days by just like reworking the component hierarchy based on someone's settings. Like I think the the new mobile Twitter app is a really interesting example of how um, a lot of the change how something works or how something looks or whatever in based on someone's preferences or based on their screen size or whatever is actually maybe better done in JavaScript than it is trying to do everything with CSS anyways. Like the way that the mobile Twitter app works, they don't even have media queries at all in any of the CSS, but it's still fully responsive. And the way that it's fully responsive is literally when the browser resizes, they're using like the resize observer API and stuff to basically be able to see, okay, the screen has gotten to this size. Um, We pass that information to the React components and the React components are querying that and checking like, well, if the screen is bigger than this, then we want to render these components. Otherwise, we want to render these components in this order or in that order. And you have so much more power when you're actually choosing like, how do we render the entire interface based on this information we have, which is like the size of the viewport compared to like, how do I superficially style this interface based on that information, Mm. you know? So you're saying that each component or maybe just, you know, a certain parent in each component hierarchy is self-aware in terms of their ability to render based on the current viewport size versus like some sort of global themed thing that happens. Yeah, totally. Like you you could imagine like you have this parent component that receives the current viewport size as a prop or something Mm -hmm. in React. And it basically says like, if viewport size is greater than 600 pixels, then we render the desktop navigation component. Else, we render the mobile navigation component. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you have so much more flexibility. It's not just about, like, what CSS properties can I change? Like, you can literally change what interface is being created, you know? Yeah. That's interesting. It's interesting how that plays out to to put the logic there versus in the CSS with media queries or things like that. I just think there's a limit that you run into. And if you're open to working in a way where you're comfortable kind of offloading some of that workload to JavaScript where you have more power anyways, then like the themeability stuff really just doesn't matter as much anyways. You don't have to pick class names that are good for themeability because you just literally render different classes, (laughs) you know? Right. Yeah. If someone has a red theme chosen, then you use text red. Well, the logic gets removed out of a, the CSS, which is, you know, really a static language, and it's not really for dynamics, which is why SAS or less came into the picture was to start to put those kinds of things into place because people wanted to program, for lack of better terms, mm-hmm. their their style sheets. And in you know, some cases generate, some cases, you know, reuse. You mentioned mixins earlier and how using add apply pulls those classes in, very similar to a SAS mixin. And it's all what I find interesting about this subject is less like there's one way to do it and more like design is iterative and building CSS or building um, visual design on the web is very iterative. Like you'd mentioned, you would begin with HTML by putting X amount of or whatever classes fit based on Tailwind and eventually abstract that to a class and so on and so forth. And so what you find is it isn't like it's a once and done. It's very evolutionary very iterative which also makes it very hard to say here's how you go right to point b you kind of have to go to point 
you know, A.1, A.2, A.3 to kind of iterate your way to B. You know what I mean? For sure. And one thing about Tailwind 2, it seems to me, is like, is that it provides this underlying kind of unspoken, well, I guess in, in this case, more of a spoken rule. <laughs> you know, CSS at large gives you no rules, right? But if you have Tailwind in place, you're adopting some of these principles you're talking about, then, you know, there's a set rule or a rules of engagement for building styles that you and I, as team members on a style sheet building or front end team can agree upon. Yeah. And so like CSS by itself has none of that. And you're essentially saying, here's at least some ground rules for us to apply to. Yeah. These are things you're going to use throughout various style sheets. Here's at least a one, a comics, uh, a common naming theme, you know, for how you reference these things. Yeah. And two, Here's what you and I can both use rather than going to the bare metal of CSS, you know, values and properties. Yeah, exactly. We're basically giving you like a curated API on top of CSS so that, you know, maybe we have like nine different font sizes on the site or something. And even that is probably more than you actually need. Um, But with Tailwind, you're guaranteed to only ever have those nine font sizes ever appear in your CSS. Like one of my favorite things to do is, have you ever seen the CSSstats.com tool? Yeah. No. So basically what it lets you do is it lets you dump in like a link to a CSS file and it'll analyze it and pull out like all the different colors that were used, all the different font sizes that were used, um, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's I think it's created by Adam Morse, the guy who created Tachyons. It's pretty fun because it, I, I, what I like to do is I like to find style sheets from teams that I think are are right at that right size where I bet you they're like probably struggling with CSS maintainability because they're probably a small team on an app that's scaling and like it's not like you're working at Facebook or something where like every kilobyte matters that you're sending over to the wire because they're trying to make it work on phones Mm -hmm. and third world countries and stuff like that where they have a team that's like performance keeping the CSS lean we have that under control but there's like a, a a company size like right underneath that where the CSS is usually like completely out of control (laughs) and you can find some of these like apps that are great applications, but you put in the CSS file and you can see on CSS stats, you get like, Oh, they have 71 different font sizes on their site. And it's all because people are like, some people are using REMS. Some people are using M's. Um, maybe some people are using pixels in some places, whatever. And and because people are authoring new CSS all the time, like just new values, new magic values keep showing up over and over again. Mm. Whereas with Tailwind, like that will never happen. You're, you have all that stuff decided up front and you're just kind of applying that in the HTML, which in my experience ends up being a really nice and practical uh, way to work because you don't waste time trying to decide like, Oh, should this be like a 16 pixel font or a 17 pixel font? You know, it's either going to be 16 or 20 because right. like those are the two options that are there. So you pick the one that looks better and you move on because you sort of know that like the way we style things is by applying existing classes, not by writing new CSS whenever possible, at least. Um, so it definitely leads to, I think, more consistent looking uh, user interfaces, too, than what you'd get by authoring new CSS all the time, unless you're being really careful. But again, I know so many people who are backend developers who don't really have a good sense of design because it's just not something that they've practiced or are super interested in, but it's still their responsibility to add a new section to this form on this site and they don't have a designer to work with. So they got to do something. You right. know what I mean, and mm-hmm. um, I think what we're doing with Tailwind makes life a lot easier for people in those situations a lot of the time. So you mentioned Adam Morris and 
I've been having deja vu all over again during this call because <laughs> we did have a, sh- a episode of the changelog with him maybe a year and a half, two years ago now, the author of tachyons, which at least used to dub itself as functional CSS. A lot of similar themes here in this conversation. Definitely. Um, he, he, he go back and listen to that listeners. We'll put it in the show notes. He goes through his transformation to finding this and what he was going through. And so I'm curious, tachyons is out there version four. Tailwind is out there. Can you compare and contrast the two in terms of, do they have different angles at the same goal? Do they have different goals? Do you know tachyons well enough to speak to it? What are your thoughts on that? So I sort of discovered tachyons a little late in the sense that I already had half the stuff put together because kind of like you alluded to, I sort of like accidentally stumbled down the same path and went from like point A to point B sort of in parallel a little bit later. Um, but sort of on my own, kind of landed on a lot of the same conclusions. Although um, the third Adam that we're talking about here has done a, a lot of research into stuff like... Uh, oh no, I didn't even realize that. A lot of like functional CSS performance and, and a lot of interesting things there. And and that stuff was mostly useful for me to go and look at after I'd kind of stumbled upon this philosophy myself and see it as sort of validation. I think probably the big difference between uh, Tailwind and Tachyon's the most obvious difference up front and some things in tachyons have changed regarding this is that I really wanted tailwind to be really, really easy to customize because I found that, um, with tachyons, they kind of deliver it as like a static CSS thing, which is great for a lot of use cases. But if you need to change the colors or you want to change the type scale or something, sort of the recommended approach at the time that I was working on tailwind was like, well, you can always like fork it and change stuff, which is, totally valid but i wanted to kind of create a system that felt like it was more encouraging customization or, or that there was like an idiomatic way to do it with like some guidance so mm. that's why tailwind sort of has this config file that sort of generates your css based on what you specify as like what font weights you want to use what colors you want to use stuff like that tachyons has like a generator project which is similar in a lot of ways um now as well but yeah they, they are similar the other difference i think is tachyons tends to choose much more terse names for classes. So I think if you have never seen an approach like this and you're used to working with Bootstrap or something and then you look at Tachyon's classes on an element, you'll sort of be like, what the hell am I looking at? I don't know what this does. It's just like BR2, F5. Um, And Tailwind is a lot more, a little bit more expressive in terms of what the class names are. So they're longer class names and they try to, be a little friendlier. Um, I think of Tailwind as like, Tailwind's a lot more palatable to someone who's already kind of used to bootstrap. It's a little bit more of a leap, but not like too crazy. Whereas I think seeing the Tachyon's class names can be a little bit off-putting at first. That said, the funny thing is like, once you get really comfortable with this approach. The shorter, the better probably. (laughs) I think you tend to want shorter class names over time. You almost want it to feel like keyboard shortcuts for CSS or something. You know what I mean? Um, So I think there's definitely value in uh, both approaches. It just increases the learning curve, though, on the front end. Yeah, there's there's a different learning curve. Right. To get into Tailwind, I have to understand your your reasoning for shortening and then, you know, not so much just agree with it, but then just, it's almost like Git. <laughs> I yeah, think of, yeah. like, every time I create a Git alias, you know, I still want to learn Git. I still want to learn Git commands. And when I create aliases, it's great, except for 
GC to me may mean something completely to you, different to you on your command line, you know, which for me is get commit. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. Uh, and I actually append dash M in the quotes and opens up my editor and all that good stuff. So that's a practice I choose. Right. So I kind of agree with the terseness, but sometimes it's like, it's harder for, it, it definitely adds to that front end of the learning curve. I think it's good that there's multiple options out there for people. There's a lot of other utility-based CSS frameworks too, like turret CSS or base CSS. Or Have you considered making the, the class names changeable too? Because you mentioned the config and being able to kind of fine-tune colors and stuff. People have asked for that, and um, I'm still open to the idea. The one hesitation I have is I really like the idea of knowledge of Tailwind being like pretty portable despite the yeah. fact that like yeah. the suffixes of classes can change because maybe you change your type scale to be you know text one two three four instead of text sm text md text whatever so it's already partially customizable but i think if we made it fully customizable first of all i'm not convinced that most people would even touch the customizations anyways i think most people want the decisions to be made for them and just to learn what the actual class names are and then i think the other thing is it's sort of too bad if two different projects have completely different class names even though they're technically using like the same css like tooling under the hood yeah it's nice if you can learn tailwind and kind of memorize that stuff and be able to apply it on on another project and maybe you have to learn a new scale or new color names or something like that but for the core stuff to be as consistent as possible i, th I think there's a lot of value in trying to shoulder the burden of naming for the community instead of just like offloading that to everybody else. But maybe we'll still make it configurable to a degree for the people who really want to to dive into it. It already is sort of like Tailwind has a plugin system. So say like you didn't like the names we use for our Flexbox classes, you could always disable Tailwind's internal Flexbox plugin, the one that kind of ships with it, and just write your own Flexbox plugin that provides different class names. That's sort mm -hmm. of like the, yeah. it's a little more effort than maybe just providing a map of like what the old class name is and what the new one should be or whatever. But technically you can just use Tailwind as sort of a tool for generating CSS if you just disable all the built-in stuff and replace it with your own. I can agree with your desire to make that one constraint be a constraint for everyone because I think what may be underspoken here is the is the wisdom that comes from this. Like the, you built this out of the wisdom of many years of you building interfaces and, and websites and whatnot, and having had these same battles either just by yourself or with other team members or whatever. So, you know, to to leverage names that you've sort of made sense can help someone that's newer or getting to being more comfortable with CSS or jumping into style sheets, not have to rethink what you've already thought through. You know, it's already pre-baked in a way from that regard, because let's face it, naming things is hard. Totally. Yeah. That's the, that's the thing. Like people say they want to have the power to name things, but I'm not convinced that they, yeah. that they would actually enjoy it. So, and I think the other thing is like the names, it's important that they're pretty good, but Eventually, it just gets to a point where, like, you've learned them and you're using them to accomplish a certain thing, and you don't really care, like, what the exact characters that you had to type to get there were. There's, like, a threshold where a name is, like, good enough, um, and this is something I've been battling with Tailwind 1.0 that I'm working on is kind of auditing the existing stuff and seeing, like... You know, if I knew what I knew now after so many people have used it over the last year and a half, like would I have made this class named differently or something? 
And that's been like really hard to decide when, even if I think I have a better class name, is like, is it worth changing? Like, was that old class name actually bad? And is it worth creating a breaking change and kind of throwing people's mm-hmm. muscle memory away and stuff like that? Which one you, any, any particularly you're kind of like struggling with or recently on your list of like, oh man, I really. Two of the ones that I've been battling with the last week and I kind of made a decision on it earlier this week is um, for letter spacing and line height, we use uh, tracking and letting sort of class names. So tracking is like the typographic term for letter spacing and letting is like the typographic term for line height. And we chose those originally because line dash height dash loose or whatever just was too long of a class name or letter dash spacing dash tight was too long of a class name. Whereas like tracking tight is quite a bit shorter and like letting loose is quite a bit shorter um, while still not being like totally cryptic. Although you do have to kind of learn that terminology. But those were two classes that I was revisiting and thinking like, uh, do I really like that we're sort of forcing people to learn these typography terms that maybe they've never heard before? Um, But I couldn't come up with a new class name that I liked better. Like I could do LH for line height or something or LS for letter spacing. It felt like, yeah, that might be really easy for me because I've been using it for so long. But I have to remember that like one of the reasons that people sort of feel comfortable trying Tailwind when they're already used to something like Bootstrap is that the names are a little bit friendlier. But I also don't want things to be super, super long still. So eventually on that one, because I just couldn't come up with anything that felt like this is obviously better, I can't believe I didn't name it this way in the first place, even if I could come up with something that felt 5% better, feels like I have to um, take into account sort of the breaking change you know, and really give some weight to that. And I just decided just not to change them because people have already learned them. People who, people who have used Tailwind for more than one day don't care. They think the names are fine and they have them in all sorts of projects and stuff anyways. So I got to be careful not to just break things for the sake of breaking them. As long as the naming is still past that sort of minimum threshold of it's a totally justifiable name and it's good enough, you know? Well, the good thing about breaking changes in CSS, at least they'll got to fix them, yeah. is find and replace. So, I mean, find and replace still is an option. It's not terrible. And in most editors, it's you can do find all across many yeah. files or even target a specific directory. directory. So it, it wouldn't be the end of the world. I think the one thing you'd, you'd have concerns around is the learning. You know, so once yeah. you've already baked it in. But even that, I mean, for me, I think some of these concerns around tracking and, and, uh, and letting in particular is maybe in the documentation as you are learning it, explaining why you chose this name. Because yeah. half the reason why somebody may disagree is because they don't understand why yep. you chose, you know, this equal ground to stand upon. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I'll definitely take that into uh, consideration for sure. This episode is brought to you by Algolia, search technology to power your business. Trusted by Twitch, Stripe, Adobe, and many more. Even us. Yes, we use them to power our search, and we love the way they obsess over that developer experience. They let us fine-tune the index for the best results and report back what people are searching for, even servicing search terms that get zero results, which we love. Check the show notes for a link to get started for free, or head to algolia.com to learn more.
Well, let's change gears just a little bit and talk about you and your work, because on December 28th of the last year, you said something I've ne- I don't think I've heard anybody ever say. You're going full time on an open source CSS framework or utility yeah. library. <laughs> it's like, hmm, full time on an open source utility library. Tell us more. Yeah, sure. So um, I am pretty fortunate to be in a position where I make a full time living creating like books and courses and stuff like I kind of mentioned before. And the nice thing about the kind of little business I've created for myself is that I don't have to sort of trade time for money. I kind of grind on like some new product and marketing it and make sure, making sure that, you know, it's going to do well. And then I kind of put it out there. But most of my time is like during the year is really kind of like R&D mode. You know, I can just sort of like explore new stuff, work on stuff, look for new stuff to teach people, stuff mm-hmm. like that. And um, because of that, and because like in December, we just released this, me and Steve Shoger released this book, Refactoring UI, which is kind of a uh, kind of book and course for helping developers learn design. And that did phenomenally well, like well beyond our expectations. Uh, because of that, I feel like really comfortable just basically not really focusing on making money for, for at least the next year and just trying to get Tailwind 1.0 out the door and trying to sort of grow the community around it and 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 kind of put it out there as like a really polished um option for people mm. like i a couple of my friends like taylor otwell is a good friend of mine who runs laravel and evan Yu is a pretty good friend of mine who created view um and what i think is really cool about what those guys have been able to do they've sort of been able to like leave their mark on sort of the web development world with like a tool that a lot of people use and get value from and interact with every day because like that's the code that they're typing to solve problems for the company that they work for. Right. Yeah. And I think, um, I, what my hope is anyways, is that I have an opportunity to do something like that with tailwind, at least for the people that the sort of approach resonates with, um, where I can sort of really double down on it and put sort of the uh, time and attention into it. That's necessary to make it feel like a really competitive sort of player in like the CSS framework space, I guess. <laughs> and a lot of that isn't really about like um, the tool itself, you know, and uh, yeah, and like continuing to add features or change class names or, or stuff like that. It's all the stuff around it, right? It's all the stuff around it, like improving the documentation, creating like I have plans to do like a like a designing with Tailwind, like free sort of video course um, that I want to put out there. Um, maybe work on some more like opinionated, like Tailwind themes. So like layers built on top of Tailwind that give you, um, a little bit more pre-built stuff. Cause something that you sort of alluded to before that we didn't really get into is like, yeah, who the target market for Tailwind kind of is. I thought we'd loop back around to that when we got to the full time, mm-hmm. because it seems like there's a missing layer on top. And even with Tachyons, he has a component library that he's building on top, which provides a lot of the stuff that a utility library wouldn't provide, but you know, with the same opinions, with the same personality and the same support behind it, it seems like a, a natural next step and just in terms of, you know, features. hundred percent. Yeah. So I think there's like an interesting opportunity there to, to sort of try and bridge the gap for like, like Tailwind is definitely the ironic thing about Tailwind is it's a CSS framework that prevents you from ever having to write CSS again, generally. But you have to be really good at CSS to, um, <laughs> to really have good outcomes with it, right? Because you really have to know like how to structure your markup to 
make things go in the place they're supposed to be, how Flexbox works, right. how to be clever with absolute positioning and, you know, the knowing that you have to set something to position relative for Z index to work, you know, all these little things like that, that are, are not like really abstracted away from you. Right. Like the people that know that stuff are probably just, you know, arti- doing their artisanal CSS themselves most of the time, right? Because they've learned, they've spent all the time learning how to do it. They, they can probably just start from a blank file. Yeah, but I, I think there's still a huge group of those people that still love the idea of just being able to design in the markup. Because I think I fall into that category anyways. Like I, I think of myself as someone who knows and understands CSS pretty well and can kind of make it do whatever I want it to do. Um, but I still love the workflow of just like living in the one file, typing up the classes that do what I want to do instead of having to come up with a name for something, jump over to another file, style it, jump back, apply the class, whatever. Mm-hmm. The gymnastics is is very fatiguing, let's just say, yeah. especially if you're skilled. You know, if you're like, if you've done this a thousand times, the back and forth gets really old. The naming is the brutal part. So anyways, yeah, like I was saying, I, th- I think there's still opportunity to bridge the gap a little bit more for people who don't have the CSS experience to really like make Tailwind do exactly what they want without investing a lot of time learning it. Um, so just trying to provide some more, like maybe some premium UI kits or something where there's like some, and, and that's kind of part of like how I'm hoping to make the whole thing sort of sustainable and being able to keep working on it, looking for opportunities to create like sort of pro stuff that I can charge money for that can help me keep working on the community stuff and improving the documentation and, and, and stuff like that. So we'll see what, what's going to happen there. Uh, me and uh, my friend, Steve, who I did the design book with, have started exploring it a little bit, but we haven't got super deep into it yet. Cause I'm still working on trying to get this 1.0 thing out the door. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Do you got any specific questions about like the, the full time thing or any advice? Um, I would say both maybe. I mean, I, I don't think I have a specific, like it makes sense if you're, if your coursework and the other stuff that you're doing, your, your product is giving you enough of a runway to do this. I think it's awesome. I, I think it's great that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, the, the natural desire is like, well, I, can I just maximize my income by pouring myself more into these things that are generating revenue? And so you're deferring that and saying, well, maybe there's a, maybe there's a financial upside in deferring that for now. And maybe Tailwind becomes bigger than anything that I you know, could imagine on the, on the course side. But, but more than that, your goal is to, I don't know, the old Steve Jobs kind of put a dent in the universe idea of like, well, let's make a real solid run at this since you have the financial freedom to do so. I would just say that's awesome. Uh, I mean, I love one of the things, I mean, I, I, in my mind, I go back to semantic UI with Jack Lukic because, you know, he's struggled with this so much. Like that, that, that framework blew up. I mean, it, it was number one, you know, on GitHub for many, for, probably for years until what came around. Was it React? I can't remember what's number one anymore, but maybe Kubernetes. I don't know. Very popular. Like he, <laughs> he, he kind of, uh, for lack of more eloquent words, he kind of like, buckled under the stress of just the peer like the number of people were using it were so many and he's trying to figure out how can it be sustainable and you know he's making a little bit of money over here and he's doing some consulting over there and you know it's been a a long struggle for him um and so we can see what success can look like in terms of lack of sustainability and so i think it's i think it's awesome first of all that that you're giving it a good shot yeah 
And it makes me want to, it makes me want to get on the tailwind bandwagon because, you know, here we have a person who's put years into it and then it's going to continue to put time into it and love into it. And it's the thing that will, you know, persist at least for a little while. Um, on the sustainability front, I don't know, Stack seems like uh, you might have some ideas for maybe we. Maybe you could. Uh, I would say a plan B would make sense. I mean, a, a wise move would be a plan B. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's a good. That's a good advice. I also see this like this. I I can't imagine how long it would require you to be full time on Tailwind. It might be just seasonal for you. Sure, full time for a year or two, maybe. Totally. I, I think of it as kind of Give like a, a try. yeah, yeah, like a right. 2019 sort of push it over the finish line. You know what I mean? And then. Uh, and then see what's kind of next. I try not to try and think too far ahead because every time I think I have like the next three projects lined up, um, I'm always completely wrong. You know what I mean? Like some mm-hmm. different opportunity or idea shows up. Um, so I already have other things that I'd like to work on too, but I try to just like not think about them and just focus on the thing that I know I want to do right now and kind of see where things are at after, after that. Worst case scenario, like there's things I need to do for my existing business anyways, like update courses when new version like i got a view course view three is sort of on the horizon that has some things that are going to change how things have to be in my view course so i got to re-record that eventually and kind of relaunch that and worst case scenario you know thankfully the software industry is um pretty uh you know it's not too challenging to find a job if i ever had to worst case scenario so Mm. um for now just gonna see what i can do with this thing and uh have a good time doing it hopefully have you considered any commercial opportunities with Tailwind? Not that you want to take advantage of them of yourself. You know, like I'm thinking the easy one is just consulting or support around it. So if you've got, you know, designers who are freelancers that could use some extra and you want to have a support network, maybe that's something that, you know, businesses or corporations yeah. or anybody who's using it that has some extra capital to spend on consulting or support and say, hey, g- give, us, give us two or three hours of your time or like a certain product you know, productize something to say, give me the leg up on this aside from just the docs. Totally. You know, or have you considered anything, not just that idea, but it's just me spitballing. Yeah. So like one idea is to do these like UI kits sort of things where it's like a, a little bit of a higher level of abstraction on top of Tailwind while still giving you all the power under the hood and maybe charging money for that. Not too different from like bootstraps kind of theme marketplace sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, see, see what happens with that. Because I think bootstrap has been pretty successful with that. It'd be, curious to talk to someone who actually kind of is involved with that on the day-to-day and find out if the numbers are as good as they appear from the outside um but there's other opportunities too like i know um for example uh taylor and evan uh laravel and view respectively both use patreon sort of i kind of don't think patreon is the right answer in terms of like long-term sustainability but what they really use it for is just a vehicle to sell basically ad space on like the documentation yeah. essentially. Um, and they both do really well from that. Like Evan is able to work totally full time on view very comfortably from that, which, so that's interesting. And there's perks you can offer to companies who want to be involved in that too. Like maybe they get like a one hour call once a month or something and you can sort mm-hmm. of, you know, answer their questions or give them some advice on things. I think, um, another interesting idea could be something like, uh, you know, people come into the tailwind discord or slack that we used to have once in a while asking if there's anyone who they can pay to like build out a design with tailwind that they had done for them in photoshop or something um so maybe there's a way to sort of create a network of of people that i could sort of you know 
have vetted, you know, as like sort of like the tailwind approved sort of implementers. (laughs) And maybe there's like a way to sort of make some money there. Um, So I think there's a lot of interesting interesting opportunities um you know educational stuff too if i really wanted to although ideally i'd like to just keep all that stuff totally free because i think that's the best way to to kind of grow the community anyways um but yeah those are kind of some of the ideas i'm tossing around right now it's the one thing you said around free was the video tutorials or where was it at i'm I'm, I'm kind of scanning quickly because you said the keyword free and you said something in your announcement of going full-time that it would be Completely free. Oh, there it is. Video tutorials. It would be completely free, and I'm hoping to have it ready around April or May. So you're you're in progress on some of this stuff, obviously, because it's uh it's not even March yet. It's it's uh, February, as far as I can tell. Yeah, getting 1.0 out the door, and then as soon as I know that like 1.0 is good, then I think that's when it makes sense to really invest in putting together like a really polished, yeah. high quality sort of educational resource, so that it's not you know, out of date two months later when I release 1.0 or something. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the next big project for sure. As soon as 1.0 is done, I've sort of updated all the documentation and kind of feel good about that stuff. Going to do this big like video series. And one of the goals of the video series is not going to just be like how to use Tailwind, like how to install it, what the features are, like that stuff will be covered too. But the real goal is more like some practical like recipe style stuff. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, let's build a responsive nav bar with Tailwind and I'll sort of walk through why we're doing it this way and what these different classes do. So you'll sort of be like learning CSS at the same time um, to try and help people who don't have a lot of CSS knowledge be more effective with Tailwind really is kind of my main goal for that. So not so much just like pure documentation stuff, a lot more like learn how to build good looking stuff with tailwind so a little bit of design kind of knowledge in there a lot of just understanding how css works knowledge um and then of course just how to do that stuff with tailwind too well let's talk about the state of 1.0 maybe the the state of tailwind with regards to you know is the water warm should people hop in today should they go out to the website should they wait for 1.0 like what's in terms of adoption, maybe hopping in and trying it out, is it worth waiting until the until you got it finalized, or is it pretty safe to give it a shot today? Um, there's a couple things that are going to change. Nothing too significant. I've been really trying to not to introduce breaking changes for literally no reason. So the only things that are really changing um, currently are uh, the config file structure is changing in. A very superficial way, though. So I'm planning with 1.0 to basically ship a utility that can just let you pass, like, on the CLI, a path to your old config file, and it'll upgrade it to the new config file. Um, So that'll be pretty chill in terms of that. Other than that, there's not really any, like, significant breaking changes. I'm just kind of going through and fine-tuning some of the default values. So one of the decisions that we made for 1.0... with sort of the zero dot whatever versions that have been out so far, when you start a brand new Tailwind project, the first thing you do is you run this Tailwind CLI command. You do like Tailwind init, and it creates a new Tailwind config file for you. It's just a single file, but it has Tailwind's entire sort of default design system scaffolded out right there in the file. So all the default colors, the default font sizes, the default border widths, all that stuff is in there for you to edit and customize as needed. Uh, One of the decisions that I made for 1.0 is to... I kind of feel like that was almost like cowardly the way I was doing that because I didn't, I wanted people to own all of their styles from the very beginning of a project because I didn't want 
to change my mind about our like width scale or something and then have that break people's projects when they like upgraded to the next version and like some of the default values had changed and they were sort of inheriting those from the default configuration. Um, so one of the things that's changing for 1.0 is uh, I've sort of collapsed under that pressure and decided, you know what, it makes more sense for people to rely on the default design system that we provide. And how instead of their config file being like a combination of all the defaults plus their customizations and overrides, having their sort of like config file being the source of truth really for just the things they've changed. So the documentation is kind of where you go to learn about how everything works by default. If you've changed anything though, you can just look at your config file and see like the 11 little tweaks that you made or whatever. And it's not lost in like a big config file where there's no visual difference between what was a default and what was a customization, you know? So mm-hmm. this way it keeps them a little bit more separated. But but part of that means um, I'm burdening, or sorry, I'm shouldering more of the burden for making sure that the defaults are really good because I want people to rely on them as much as possible. Because there's certain things that don't really have to change from site to site. Like if we give you a really good spacing scale for margin and padding, that doesn't have to change between two radically different designs. You know what I mean? The things that are most likely to change between two totally different looking sites are like the color palette, the fonts that you're choosing, uh, maybe like what breakpoints you're changing things at, but like really sort of like structural under the hood things, like what your type scale is and what like your spacing scale is. Those same sets of values work really well on multiple designs like the thinking behind it is mostly the same no matter what site you're building so i think there's going to be a lot of stuff in the default sort of tailwind theme or configuration that people shouldn't really have to change unless they really really want to but it's not going to be required to change if you want to make your site like look different um than some other tailwind site you know so all that to say the other thing that I'm really working on right now is just fine tuning all of the default values in Tailwind and making sure that I really feel good about like the default uh, scales and stuff that we're providing for people and that I really think we won't need to change them. Um, but that's not really a breaking change for most people anyways, because most people's configuration files have all of the values pre-scaffolded in. Mm. So if they're relying on like a spacing scale that we change for 1.0, they can still upgrade to 1.0 and it won't matter because they're already overriding it with the old values. And there's literally no reason for them to upgrade if the old values were working for them. Um, but a lot of the time they've probably made customizations to decisions that I made that weren't that good that I'm hopefully, hopefully going to make better mm. now anyways. Um, so the upgrade process, all that to say, yeah, it'll be really smooth. There's no reason really not to dive in right now. Um, I'm hoping to do like, we're on like version 0.7.4, I think right now. My plan was this week to get out 0.8.0, which would be sort of like a 1.0 preview. Um, but that might not be till early next week at this point. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to get out a version pretty soon. That's going to look almost exactly like 1.0. And, um, the idea with 1.0 is just, I'm hopefully just going to re-tag an existing tag without changing anything and just say, okay, it's 1.0 now. You know what I mean? I think, I think that's probably the ideal way to do it anyways, but, uh, yeah, we're going to be there soon. I originally promised it would be this month that we get 1.0 out. I think it's probably going to be the first week of March now because I'm going to have to do a lot of work on, uh, not really a lot of work, but I, I want to improve the documentation. I don't want to tag 1.0 without having like feeling like all the documentation is finished and polished. Cause right now there's still a lot of pages that are not fully fleshed out or there's topics that I'd like to get more into. And I'd like to kind of like 
do 1.0 as a little bit more of a splashy thing and not just like, okay, let's well, tag and it's on NPM, but none of the docs are updated yet. And you have to, you know what I mean? That kind of yeah. seems sloppy. Hopefully, yeah, it'll be out within the next couple of weeks. Definitely. Um, it's definitely still a good time to get into it uh, right now, though. And the upgrade process will be really, really painless. Very good. Well, any final thoughts from you before we call this a show? I don't think so, man. Uh, thank you guys so much for for having me on to talk about this stuff. It's always a blast to talk Tailwind with people, and I've been a listener of the Change Log for for many years. So oh, great. it's really exciting to kind of get my voice on here too. That's kind of like a bucket list item, sort of for sure. So nice, man. Thanks again for having me on. I've been fans of yours for a while too, so I'm I'm excited that we finally crossed paths. You know, it's super cool. That's right. <laughs> Let me just promote a couple of our shows. So if you didn't listen last week, Paige Bailey on JS Party did an awesome job talking about machine learning and TensorFlow JS. Go back and listen to that episode. Coming down the pipe, we have some awesome guests. Next week, K-Ball and Suze invite Ashi Krishnan. She's keynoting at React Amsterdam. K-Ball will be at React Amsterdam, so she'll be joining the show next week. And then two weeks from this show, uh, we are having Chris Coyer on. Yes, we're going to talk more about the front-end divide. We just can't get enough of that conversation. So that will be me and Suze. Uh, Chris will be joining us. Should be an awesome one. So if you're just stopping by to listen to Adam, hey, give us a subscribe. Uh, stick around. There's lots of cool episodes coming down the pipeline. All right, great show, guys. Hey, one last thing. We've added discussions to our website now. So if you have comments for Adam, if you have questions, if you want to give us feedback on this show, uh, open your show notes. There is a link at the bottom that says Discuss on Changelog News. Click on that and you can fire us off a comment. Or if you're on the website, changelog.com slash jsparty. This is episode hmm, 65. If I got that number right. Uh, click on the discuss link there and uh, we'd love to hear from you. So that's our show. We'll see you next week. All right. Thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelog.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelog.com slash community. And do us a favor. Share this show with a friend. Read us an Apple podcast. Go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things right here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. We're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at Changelog.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Practical AI is a show hosted by Daniel Whitenack and Chris Benson about making artificial intelligence practical, productive, and accessible to everyone. You'll hear from AI influencers and practitioners, and they'll keep you up to date with the latest news and resources so you can cut through all the hype. As you were at the uh, Thanksgiving table with your your friends and family, were you talking about the fear of AI? Well, I, I wasn't at the Thanksgiving table because my wife has forbidden me from doing so. Um, <laughs> oh, I, it's it's off limits for, for me, lest I drive her insane because I never stop. New episodes premiere every Monday. Find this show at changelaw.com slash practically I or wherever you listen to podcasts.